Today we're going to continue our series that we started last week called Christmas Playlist. And in this, in this uh, series of messages, what we're doing is we're just taking a look at some of our favorite Christmas songs and, and, uh, and we'll, we're, today we're going to talk about a song that's almost as pop- popular as the one we talked about last week. You remember last week we talked about Silent Line and we learned that, that uh, Time Magazine declared Silent Night as the most popular Christmas song of all time. And today's carol, Joy to the World, came in second. Whereas Silent Night was written by a young priest. You know what? Before we do anything, I got all discombobulated with everything. Before we go any further, would you pray with me? We need to need the Lord's help uh, as we get into the word. Lord, I just pray that you'd help us. Lord, help me to speak what you want to say and help all of us to hear what you're trying to say to us. And I pray, God, that today that this word would be, would be strengthened and anointed and empowered by your spirit because, Lord, I am weak. I'm tired physically, but God, you are, you are made, uh, your strength is made perfect in our weakness. So I pray that you would have your way and accomplish your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. 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 Silent Night was written by a young priest who was known really for just that one song. It was like he was a one hit wonder. You know, you hear about those things, but, but the song we're talking about today, Joy to the World, was written by one of the most prolific songwriters of the 18th century, Isaac Watts. And if you're trying to figure out 18th century means the 1700s. And in his day, he was considered by some to be a very gifted songwriter, but he was also considered by others to be something of a heretic. And they considered him a heretic because he wrote original songs of Christian experience, quote unquote. And he used his own lyrics because before then, what they did is they had an established tradition of putting psalms and, and biblical texts to music. And so he, he broke that tradition and started writing some of his own words. And some of his well-known songs, you'll recognize some of them. Like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, he wrote that. Uh, oh, oh God, our hope, help in ages past. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. Here's another one that's very well-known. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. And of course, joy to the world. And as the story goes, his career as a songwriter began one Sunday when after worship, he criticized the atrocious music used in the church service. He supposedly complained that it was outdated. So it's not a modern problem. We can see that it's still the same thing all along. But his father, who was something of a theological rebel himself, he said, well, son, if you if you don't like it, write something better. So the, the following week, young Isaac presented a hymn to the church entitled Behold the Glories of the Lamb. And it was very well received in his church. And in fact, it is still sung in churches today. His very first song he ever wrote. Isaac Watts would go on to become the pastor of a large congregational church in London. And he spent his entire life in ministry, not only writing songs, but also preaching sermons and discipling believers and leading people to Jesus He died in 1748 at the age of 74. Some 30 years before his death, he wrote the Christmas carol that we love to sing each year, Joy to the World. This song is, is not just a celebration of the birth of Jesus on Christmas, but when you look at the words, you see that it's also a call to discipleship. You know, as I mentioned earlier, Isaac Watts was not just a songwriter. He was also a theologian. He was a pastor and If you read some of his songs, the lyrics to his songs, you would see that 
his, many of his lyrics sound suspiciously like sermons. And so when we look closely at the verses of Joy to the World, we discover an invitation to come and worship Christ the King as well as live our lives for him, not just uh, because it's Christmas and not just because it's his birthday, but to do that because he's the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords and he's the Savior of all mankind. And in the coming days, you know, what are we? We're, we're less than three weeks away from Christmas, aren't we? Time is going fast. But you're going to hear this song a lot, a lot in the coming weeks and in the coming days. And you, you'll hear it when you go shopping in the store. You'll hear it in, in, the, in the grocery store. You'll hear it in the elevator. You, it might come up on your Christmas playlist. You might hear it on the radio. And it's going to be, you'll hear it by many, many different artists. But here's my goal is that every time you hear this song. My prayer is that you will accept the invitation to worship him and you'll accept the challenge to live your life for his glory because that's what the song is really all about. The song tells us how to prepare our hearts for the Christmas season, but it, but it, uh, it also tells us how to get ready and how to live every single day of our lives. So we're going to look at the verses. We got four points this morning and, uh, and, I, uh, and I don't know, everybody's hungry and everybody's excited. So I'll preach fast if you'll listen fast. Is that a deal? All right. So we'll go fast forward now. But uh, first of all, let's just begin with the very first verse when he talks about preparing him room. The first words, uh, the first part of the first verse says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And the phrasing of the first part of that verse, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. That reminds me of the words of the, of the Magi when they entered into Jerusalem. You know, remember they had traveled hundreds of miles from the east and they stopped in to, to talk with King Herod to, to ask him a question. And now, now this is later because you, I don't know if you realize, but most of our nativity scenes are wrong. Did you know that? Because, because these wise men, as they're known, or the magi, these from the east, they, they didn't show up in the manger. They showed up a couple years later and they found Jesus in a house. But when they showed up in town, when they came to Israel, they, they wanted to know where this king was. And in Matthew 2, 2, this is the question they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And these men had traveled far to find this baby that had been born a king. And their question is, where is he? We're, we got to find him. Surely they would find him in a magnificent palace surrounded by the wealth and the splendor of some powerful kingdom. Surely he would be attended by the servants of a royal household. Surely he would be guarded and kept safe by soldiers who had earned the prestigious position of standing guard over such an important child. But no, they found him in a simple house, unguarded and unknown. When, when, when he had been born, he wasn't born into the lap of luxury with a silver spoon in his mouth, in his mouth. You don't put silver spoons in a mouse. Let me get my words right. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He had, he had been born to lowly parents who were, who were frank, quite frankly, living under the shadow of suspicion and shame because Mary had gotten pregnant out of wedlock and, and they knew that it was God. They understood what was taking place, at least to a degree. They knew that it was a supernatural moment, but you know what? The rest of the village had no idea. I mean, listen, if somebody in your village gets pregnant out of wedlock and they say, God did it, 
How many of you are going to be like, yeah, right. You know, suddenly you're going to be all you're, you're all going to be Missourians. You're going to be like, show me. Right. And, and we don't believe that. And so they were living under this cloud of suspicion and shame. And, and, and so he was born to them and he wasn't placed in a soft padded crib with all kinds of, you know, uh, pillows and all these, this, the nice things around there. He was laid in a manger which a manger was nothing more than a feeding trough for farm animals. He wasn't dressed in the finest clothing made of luxurious material. He was wrapped in cloths for the, cloths for, because that was what his mother had available for him. And the night he was born, his parents weren't even living in suitable quarters for any human being. They were staying in a stable out there with all of the animals in the filth, and the stench that they create. How many of you know farm animals create, create filth and stench? Can I get an amen? And they're out there living with him. How, how in the world could a baby who's born and laid in a place like that, how in the world could that be a king? How could this have happened if he was? Why wasn't Jesus born into higher circumstances than this? Well, the real simple answer is, is because when they arrived in the city of Bethlehem, there was no room in the inn. There was no room. I, I preached a message about this just a couple of weeks ago called No Room, or the message was called Make Room, but there was no room. No suitable lodging could be found. And the best they could do was send this expectant mother and her husband to the stable and say, hey, well, you know, just try to make yourself comfortable. This is the best we can do. And I said a couple of weeks ago, and I believe with all my heart that if the innkeeper had known who this baby was that was about to be born, he would have made room one way or another for this baby. Perhaps he would have gone to some couple that was already in the inn and would have said, listen, I'm going to give you your money back. That's all I can do. There's nothing I can do because after all, the king of Israel, the king of the universe is about to be born here. So surely you'll understand that we got to give him the best room in the place. So I'm sorry. Here's your money back. Or, or maybe he wouldn't do that. Maybe he'd say, I can't kick anybody out, but maybe he would have gone to his wife and he would have said to her, Hey, sweetie, we're sleeping on the living room floor tonight because you won't believe who's about to be born in this inn. But instead, there was just simply no room in the inn. Perhaps it was knowing the details of all of uh, uh, that, that blessed night that, that inspired Isaac Watts to pen that very next phrase. When he said, let every heart prepare him room. Perhaps knowing that the cares of life tend to crowd out those things that really matter in our lives caused him to write those beautiful and powerful words. Maybe he knew, as we said two weeks ago, that we don't just accidentally find room for Jesus, but we must make room for him in our hearts. Let every heart prepare him room. Now, we're getting ready to head into Christmas and I don't know if you've got family coming in. A lot of times at Christmas or Thanksgiving, big holidays like that, uh, families all get together in one place. And, and probably everybody has experienced that moment, whether it was Thanksgiving or Christmas or other, some other major event like a wedding or something like that. And I'm talking about those times when just about everybody in the whole family shows up at, at the house. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's wonderful, but you know what? Uh, you have to get ready for when the crowd comes. Uh, and, you know, part of getting ready for a company involves doing the grocery shopping. You know, uh, if it's a holiday like Thanksgiving or Christmas, somebody has to get the turkey or somebody has to get the ham. Or if you're like my family, you get both. 
and, and maybe more than one of each. And, and somebody has to get the ingredients for the dressing. Somebody has to get the potatoes. Somebody has to get the veggies. Somebody has to do all of that kind of preparation. But here's the thing. I, I think the hardest part, the biggest part, and sometimes the hardest part is trying to figure out where everybody's going to sleep. You ever been there? You, you know what I'm talking about? So they come in and you say, okay, you get this room and you, you, you get that room and you, you're on the so- sofa and oh, you're going to be on the air mattress in the dining room and oh, you get the floor in here and you, you got to sleep in your car. You should have been nicer to me last year, you know, something. Um, and it just on and on and on it goes because we, we try so hard to make sure everyone has their own place. Everybody has their own space where they can settle in and get some rest. And it's hard work. But we do it because we love the people who are coming so much that we want to make sure there's room for everyone. I'm here to tell you, we should do the same in our relationship with Christ. We need to prepare him room, not only during the Christmas season, but each and every day. So how, how do we do that? Well, we prepare him room by setting aside time each day for prayer and getting into his word. We prepare him room by making time every day just to be in his presence. Maybe we spend some time singing worship songs. You say, well, I'm not a good singer. That's okay. The Lord loves every note that you sing when you're singing worship to him. Maybe we spend time reading a devotional book. Maybe we just mark uh, some time and set it aside just, just to be silent and listen to his voice. But here's what I know. We don't find room for Jesus in our lives. We have to make room for him. We set up a daily appointment with Jesus. And then we make sure that he's the only priority for us in that moment. But here's the thing. When you decide to do that, I'm here to tell you, something will almost always come up. I'm here to tell you, it'll happen. Something will almost inevitably inevitably be screaming out for your attention. Something important and urgent is probably going to need to be done. Some Something or somebody will try to interrupt your time with Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, if you want to make room for him in your life, not just at Christmas, but every day of your life, don't let that happen. Make room for him. Set that time aside and say, this is, is, is yours, God. But you know, another thing about having guests in your house for a large family event is, is that if you're like my family, uh, we, we will take time to do a little house cleaning before the guests arrive. Anybody here, you clean house before the guests come, you know, you gotta, you gotta make sure everything is, is cleaner than ever before. And you'll start, maybe you'll even start cleaning out closets to make sure that there's place, uh, uh, for your guests to hang their, their clothing, that sort of thing. And, And you might even go through there and toss some things out that you no longer need, things that are just taking up space, but really serving no purpose. And, you know, I got to thinking about making room for Jesus. And I think maybe we need to do the same thing in our personal lives. Maybe we need to prepare him room by cleaning house. Maybe there's some things in our lives that just take up space and they make it harder for us to make room for him. Like maybe watching too much TV. Now I've just gone from preaching to meddling, haven't I? Or, or maybe we need to, maybe, maybe it's, it, it's not that. Maybe it's scrolling through Facebook or TikTok, which is a black bottomless hole that will suck your time away. Uh, or maybe it's, maybe it's somebody that, maybe it's video games for you or anything else that takes up your time and adds nothing to your life. Maybe we need to consider cleaning house to make sure that we have room and have time for Jesus. Hebrews 12, one says, therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Now I want you to notice something there because the writer says that we should get rid of every weight that slows us down and the sin that so easily entangles us. You, you know, and it's obvious, or at least it should be obvious to us, that we need to get rid of sin if we're going to run the race that Jesus has marked out for us. But sometimes it's a little less obvious to us that we need to get rid of things that slow us down. We need to get rid of things that make it harder for us to run our race well. Here, here's an example. A person could run a marathon, and they could run a marathon with a with a backpack with a 40-pound weight inside there if they wanted to. It's not against the rules. They could do that. And they could they, they might even be able to finish their race. I wouldn't. I mean, I'm not going to make it 10 yards on a marathon without the weight. So 40-pound <laughs> weights are really going to even be even worse. But And they might even be able to finish the race while, while carrying a heavy backpack like that. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, I don't think anybody would argue that, that that person could run anything close to their best race. It is not going to be their best race. If he's running with 40 pounds strapped to him, he wouldn't be setting any personal records. That's for sure. No, the truth is if he wants to run well, he gets rid of anything that's going to slow him down. That's why you see these marathon runners with just the tank top and the shorts on. They, they run, they get rid of all the extra weight. They get rid of anything that's going to slow them down because they want to run their best race. And you know what? That's not only true of race day. That, that athlete's going to get rid of junk food. <laughs> that's, a, that's heresy right there. But they're going to get rid of junk food because he knows he needs to fuel his body properly if he's going to run his race well. He's going to give up his late night parties because he knows he needs proper rest. He, he gets rid of anything, not just on race day, but in his lifetime, in his lifestyle, that's going to slow him down. And so how much more should that be true of us? If we're going to make room for Jesus, if we're going to run the race he has marked out for us to the best of our ability, then we need to make room for the things that help us run our race well. And we need to do some house cleaning to get rid of things that slow us down. And I'm not here to, I can't tell you what it is because these are not things that are sin. Sin makes it impossible for you to run the race. The word literally means to tangle you up like a snare so you can't run the race. I'm talking about things that, that, that you, you wouldn't say, well, this is sinful to do it, but the things that slow you down, that distract you, that keep you from, from, from chasing after Jesus with everything you've got. Let's move these things out. Let's make room for Jesus. Let every heart prepare room. Next, we need to make sure we repeat the sounding joy. Listen to this verse. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Now that last line is, is a bit of an odd phrase for us in our modern to our modern ears. It just sounds weird. Repeat the sounding joy, because you know, we don't say things like that. We don't say, well, repeat the sounding joy. It just sounds strange, but the word sounding is simply an archaic way of saying that something is giving forth sound, especially a loud sound. 
And what Isaac Watt was saying in this verse was that we should sound off loudly about the story of Jesus because we are, we are just filled with an overwhelming joy and that the, the sound of joy that comes from us will echo throughout all creation. And on, you know, on the day when, of the triumphal entry, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he came in on the foal of a donkey while, while crowds of people shouted their praise and they started shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the word Hosanna, it doesn't mean hallelujah or anything like that. It means save us now. They're shouting to Jesus, save us now. What was happening was that after, at this point in time in his ministry, after three years of ministry, the Jewish people were beginning to believe that maybe Jesus was the Messiah. But the problem was they thought the Messiah was going to come to break the yoke of bondage. That they thought that Jesus had come to set up the kingdom of Israel here on earth. And so they were shouting their praise as he was entering Jerusalem and, and they were, they were singing, we're with you, Jesus. Come on. You can do it. Lead us. We'll conquer these stinking Romans. We'll set up the kingdom again. We believe that you're the Messiah. So do it. Kick the Romans out. That's really what they were saying. Well, the Pharisees heard this and they told Jesus to tell his disciples to keep it down. I'm sure they were afraid of the threat to their own power because they were afraid of the political fallout from such a, an outcry. Uh, they thought, man, these Romans hear these people uh, egging Jesus on and saying, hey, we're, we're with you. Save us now. And, and, and on top of that, they were probably a little shocked and angry that Jesus was getting all this attention, that they were shouting praises to him. And, and so they just go to Jesus and say, hey, listen, buddy, you better shut these people up. <laughs> Jesus' res response in Luke 19.40, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now listen, if rocks themselves can cry out in praise to God, then so can we. And we must, at every opportunity, we must make the glory and the beauty of Christ known to everyone we can. We, we should be so filled with joy at the arrival of our Savior, not only into this world, but into our own lives that we are constantly singing his praises. And I use that metaphorically. I'm not talking about that we should always be singing a song, but I'm saying we should be constantly talking about the greatness of our God who has done this work in us. It's like the, the old Mercy Me song that says, ain't no rock gonna cry in my place. As long as I'm alive, I'll glorify his holy name. We should tell others the good news at every opportunity. This is the mission of the church, to repeat the sounding joy, to repeat this loud, re repeat loudly this joy that has come. And we do it as often as we come together to repeat this sounding joy by helping send missionaries around the world to proclaim the gospel. This sounding joy is the focus of every sermon I preach. That, that sounding joy is the reason we do what we do. It's the reason we give away turkeys at Thanksgiving. It's the reason we have an Easter egg hunt. It's the reason we give away backpacks at the beginning of the school year. It's the reason we, we have trunk or treat every year. It's because we're trying to let people know that Christ has come, that there is joy that has come into the world that Jesus can save. We're trying to do whatever we can to repeat the sounding joy that Jesus has come, that there is a Savior, that there is healing in the name of Jesus, that Jesus 
can give us a peace that passes understanding, that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be made clean before God, that we can be adopted as a child of God, that we can have hope in this lifetime and the life to come, and that we can live our life filled with, with meaning and with purpose. We must proclaim this message in our daily conversations so that others may hear. And I think we all kind of know that. But you know something? You know, you know who else needs to hear this message? You. You need to hear it every day. You need to repeat the sounding joy to yourself every day. To remind yourself each and every day that Jesus is Lord. That he's come to earth to make a difference in our lives. And that he will reign in every heart that prepares him room. We need to remind ourselves of who he is over and over and over again because we tend to forget. We, we get so distracted by, by life's cares and worries and problems and frustrations. But here's the thing. When we get distracted by all of those things, guess where we fixed our eyes? When we get distracted by the, by the cares of life and the problems of life, it means now we're looking at the problems. We're focusing in the wrong place. When we're looking at our problems, what happens to us is that our faith begins to shrink because when we look at our problems, when we pay attention to them, we notice how big they are, how unsolvable they are, they are how overwhelming they are. And many of life's problems are just that. It's, it's, you know what it's like? It's like, it's as if we're in the valley with Goliath before David showed up. You remember what happened, what was going on in the valley there uh, with, 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 with the war between Israel and the Philistines when Goliath was coming out? Davis had, David hadn't shown up yet and, and all these soldiers were there and, and all these soldiers in Israel's army, in the army of the Lord, they were there and they could see nothing but this mountain of a man challenging, to the, to, challenging them to a fight. And every single one of them knew that that giant was way bigger than they were and that he was far more powerful than any of them and that, he, he could, he, that they could not challenge him. He was way more than any of them could handle. And then to make a long story short, David shows up. David hears Goliath's challenge and he looks at him. And you know what David said? In essence, he said, that giant is not bigger than my God. And he defeated Goliath. Not because he was big enough, not because he was strong enough, not because he was clever enough, not because he was skilled enough to do it, but because he looked beyond the giant and saw how big his God was. And he stood in God's strength and it was overwhelmingly greater than the strength of the giant. You know, one of my favorite parts of the story of David and Goliath is actually at the end of the story, and doesn't get told very often. We forget what took place after Goliath was defeated by this lowly shepherd boy. What happened was the rest of the men, the rest of the army of Israel, they were standing there watching and they see this, this unarmored uh, shepherd boy go out there with no sword, no shield, no, no uh, weapons of any kind, no, uh, none, nothing. And they saw him defeat the greatest fighting man they had ever seen in their lives. You know what happened? All of a sudden they realized that if, that if they had had faith in God, they could have defeated that giant too. 
Because if that guy, if that little kid could have done it, then it, just by, by standing in faith to God, then surely I could have, I could have uh, looked to God and he would have given the victory to me. And, and so immediately what happened was as soon as Goliath was dead, the rest of the army suddenly rushed forward and they defeated, defeated the Philistines handily. Why? Why? Think about this. We already know that Goliath had had brothers. So could there have been other giants in that army? Yes, sure. There, in fact, there probably were other giants. But now the army of Israel realized that the army of Israel realized that they had nothing to fear because now they're looking to God instead of looking at the giants. And listen, friend, with our eyes on our problems instead of God, we're going to be overwhelmed. But when our eyes are on God instead of the problems. That's when we overcome. Why do we need to keep repeating the sounding of joy to ourselves every single day of our lives? We need to repeat the sounding joy of the gospel every day of our lives because it reminds us of who we serve. It reminds us how small our problems and our trials and our heartaches are when, we, when they're compared to the greatness of His glory. And when you proclaim the, the greatness of God, what happens is not only do other people hear it, but you remind yourself that there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. If you want to prepare your soul to live a victorious Christian life, make it a point to repeat the sounding joy, to repeat the truth of the gospel, to repeat who Jesus is as often as you can and, as, and in every way you can. It will strengthen you and it will strengthen those around you. Now here's the third thing. I like this one. Let's choose this over that. You say, what are you talking about? Well, I love the third verse, which, you know, the third verse of this song is kind of like the front pew at church. It doesn't get used very often, <laughs> but I think it ought to be sung every time we sing it. It's very filled with such meaning. This is what it says. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far, far as the curse is found. No more let sin and sorrow grow. Have you ever noticed that those two seem to always go hand in hand. Sin leads to all kinds of sorrow. Sin leads to broken relationships and addictions and loneliness and isolation and fear and violence and ultimately death. Sin and sorrow grow side by side. And, and of course, there are times when we experience sorrow through no, no fault of our own. There are times when we suffer sorrow simply because we're living in a broken world. But the truth is, even when that happens, ultimately it comes because sin has shattered this creation of God. However, from speaking from experience, I can say, I have paved the way for a lion's share of the sorrow that has come into my life through, the, through my own foolish and selfish behavior. Can anybody else relate to that? Anybody else that's been your experience? You know what sin also leads to? Sin leads to the thorns that infest the ground. You say, well, that is a very odd statement. What does that mean, Pastor? Well, Isaac Watts here is referring back to Genesis with this line. We all, we all remember the story of Adam, eat, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were given freedom to eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they ate from that tree, they introduced sin into this world and it was human sin that shattered God's perfect creation. Uh, 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 because sin always has consequences. It always has consequences. I'm here to tell you, when you sin and you think you got away with it, you haven't gotten away with anything. 
there are always consequences for sin. And the consequences of their sin, frankly, are still reverberating throughout the annals of time, even until today. And the consequences of their sin were many. This, listen to what the Bible says about it. Genesis chapter 3. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to, ch to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from, from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. You see, there's the thorns that it's talking about. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taking, for, du for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So here's what we know. Very clearly here, Adam and Eve's sin made their life far more difficult. And have you ever thought about this? Every time they experienced the consequences of their sin, they were, they were reminded that they caused that. Every time Eve gave birth and experienced the pain of childbirth, she was reminded that it didn't have to be that way, but her choices had caused that pain. Every time Adam toiled from daylight until dark to scratch out enough food to sustain his family, he knew that it was his fault that he had to work so hard just to get enough to survive. Every time he went to clear away the weeds from some field and was pricked by some unseen thorn, he would look down in his thumb with the blood trickling down there and he would think to himself, I did this. I did this. They had the memory of how life had once been, but saw the consequences of their sin daily. And the same is true for us. How many times do we look at the circumstance around, uh, circumstances around us and we realize, I did this. It was my sin that created this. It was my attitude that did this. It was my actions that, took, that, that caused this. And sin, the truth is, sin has a way of making life unnecessarily more difficult for us. When you allow your anger to reign in a relationship, things get thorny. When you get let laziness take over your work ethic, things get thorny. When you allow materialism and greed to influence your spending habits, things get thorny. When you compromise your integrity in what you think are small ways, things get thorny. When you allow lust to take up residence in your heart, things get thorny. When you fill your mind with the things and the philosophies of the world while rejecting God's word, things get thorny. When you fill your mind with the negativity and the garbage of social media, things get thorny. So you see, it's not just Adam and Eve living with a thorny ground. It's us. That's the curse of sin. But it says that Jesus came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So those thorns are part of the curse. And he says, I'm going to make my blessings flow even in those places where sin has caused the thorns to, to crop up. Every day, you and I have a choice. Do I want his blessings to flow into my life? Or do I want to walk barefoot through the sticker patch? Anybody ever stepped on stickers barefoot? It doesn't have to be very big. The tiniest little sticker makes me cry like a baby. I'm just here to tell you, I will, I will squeal like a, like whatever squeals. I don't even know what squeals. A stuck pig. I, a stuck pig will squeal. So that's how I'm, I'm, well, I guess I am a stuck pig. But anyway, I'm getting 
sidetracked uh, uh, side here, but, but we have that choice. What are we going to do? I choose to listen to this and not that. I hope you'll choose to say, I want to walk in God's blessings and choose to go this way, not that way. This is, this is the reality in front of us every day. I choose to spend my money here and not there. I, I choose to fill my mind with this and not that. I choose to invest my time in this and not in that. I choose to pursue this and not that. See, getting the most out of the Christmas season, getting the most out of, out of a Sunday worship every time we come together, getting the most out of every single day of your life comes down to the simple choice, this, not that. This, not that. That is a thorn patch. This is the door to God's blessing. That may seem attractive in the moment. That may feel good for a season. That may bring pleasure for a time. That may look good, but actually be poisonous. That leads to death. That leads to alienation from people and from God. That leads to pain and sorrow and heartache. That leads to a guilty conscience. That leads to regret. That leads to appetites that can never be satisfied. That leads to a place where you're always wanting more, but never finding enough. But this... Following God, this gospel, this grace, his blessings, this leads to a life of victory. This leads to peace. This leads to joy. This leads to contentment. This leads to freedom. This leads to a clear conscience. This leads to intimacy with the creator of all things. This leads to adoption into the family of God. This leads to healthy relationships. This leads to a life of purpose. The choice is so clear. And frankly, it is much easier than we often pretend. When we look at the true consequences, it makes sense to choose the way of God. Jesus has come to remove the sorrow that accompanies sin. How? By removing our sin. He's come to lead us away from the thorny path and to make his blessings overflow in our lives. And even in the darkest and dreariest corners of your life, where the curse has hit you the hardest, he came to make his blessings flow there. There is no place where sin has gone that grace can't redeem. And the final thing is, let's seek to be living proof of what he's come to do. Isaac Watts wrote this verse. He said, he rules the world. This is a powerful verse. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. Now, I got to tell you, I was telling Renee before service that when I was preparing for this message, I never put it together, but these last three lines are actually one statement. I always kind of looked at the wonders of his love and thought that was a standalone statement. That's not. This is one phrase here. He says, let me start again. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Two things, two aspects that he's saying, I'm going to make, I'm going to provide proof among the nations of the glories of my righteousness and the wonders of, the, of his love. Starts off by saying he rules the world. He rules the world. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Listen to what the Bible has to say. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That verse tells us that God is the creator. Therefore, he is the rightful owner. 
of everything in all creation. So he is the king of all creation. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has set his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules everything. First Chronicles 29, 11 and 12. Greatness, power, splendor, glory and majesty are yours, Lord, because everything in heaven and on earth is yours. The kingdom is yours, Lord, and you are honored as head of all things. Riches and honor in, are in front of you. You rule everything. You hold power and strength in your hands and you can make anyone great and strong. Isaiah 40, 22 and 23, God is enthroned above the earth and those who live on it are like grasshoppers. That's you and me. He stretches out the sky like a canopy and spreads it out like a tent to live in. He makes rulers unimportant and makes earthly judges worth noting. Psalm 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, and 99 are all known as royal psalms because they all celebrate God as king. Isaiah prophesied, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, for the government will, will, will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom as Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness, righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then you move to the New Testament in Philippians. Paul declared this. Therefore, God has exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm here to tell you this. What Paul is saying is that every person who has ever lived and who ever will live will one day bow their knee before Jesus and they will confess. We see now you are Lord, you are king, you are the ruler and we, we, we confess that. Now the question is whether we will do that in this lifetime or will we, will, where the, or will, will we do it when we are forced to bow? And listen, nobody's going to make that confession, you know, uh, with resignation and say, okay, I finally admit your king. No, no, no. When we see him in his glory, in his power, in his majesty, we will be, every human being will be so overwhelmed. We will be absolutely convinced there will be no argument. We'll look at him and say, truly, you are the Lord. He rules the world to be sure. There's no one like our God. He rules the world. But here's the question you have to answer. Will he rule your world? Will he rule your world? He wants to fill our lives with truth and grace. Isaac Watts wrote about that. Because both of those are, 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 are ours in Christ Jesus. God, John's gospel says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know, you talk about truth. We are in desperate need of both, but... If we've ever needed truth in this world, it's now. Truth, truth is under attack. We've talked about this in recent weeks, but you know, people say there's no real truth, that truth is relative, there's no such thing as absolute truth. But I always find that statement so amusing because to say that is a statement of absolute truth. You know, so I always just ask them, well, is that absolutely true? That there's no absolute truth? Because if there's no absolute truth, then you cannot say that there is no absolute truth because you're stating an absolute truth, which means it must exist. And if we've, if we've ever needed truth, it's now. 
You know, there, there is so much on the internet, on Facebook, Google, all the different social media. There's so much that claims to be true. You, you, you can see people talking about the strangest ideas and claiming this is true. And we all know if you see it on Facebook, it must be true, right? <laughs> see, that's the way, that's the way a lot of people treat it. You know, I saw that cucumbers cure cancer. <laughs> Where'd you see that? I was on Facebook. Oh, well, then it must be true. I've never seen that one. I just, I don't know where that one came from, but, but there are so many claims to truth. There are so many strange ideas that are masquerading as truth. And you know what? I'm here to tell you, even in the Christian world, there are many, many false teachers that claim to have a corner on truth. But the good news is that Jesus came to bring truth. In fact, he didn't just come to bring truth. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. He is the answer. He is our true hope. And here's the, here's the thing, though, about truth. This is the problem with truth. Truth is a bit of a two-edged sword. Because truth will always show us that we fall short of the glory of God. Truth will always show us that we are sinners. Truth shows us that we have failed miserably in our lifetime to live the way that honors God and the way that he created us to live. And truth shows us that we have alienated ourselves from the presence of the only one in whom there is life. And here's the thing. If truth was the only thing that Jesus brought to us, we would still be in a world of hurt. We'd be in a world of trouble. That's why it's so wonderful that Jesus came to, to bring us not only truth, but he came to bring truth and grace. We need truth. But you know what? We really need grace because we're sinners. We're subject to Eden's curse, capable of only, only of making a mess of our lives. And we need, God, we need God's grace to make things right. We cannot earn our way into a right, right relationship with God. We get there by mercy. We talked about that, I think, even last week, how some people get this idea, you know, that at the end of things, at the end of my life, when I stand before God, that I, I'm going to make it into heaven. I hope I'll make it in because I'll, I have more good stuff on the scale than bad stuff. And that, that's not how it works at all. Because God's not just measuring out your life and saying, well, did you do more good or more bad? That's not what it is at all. The problem is none of the sin can enter into heaven. None of the sin can get there. And the problem is we're all sinners, right? Let's take a little survey. I've done this before. Let's do another survey. I want to see your hand. I want everybody to participate. How many of you have ever told a lie? Let me see your hand. Okay. Some of you haven't told a lie. Really? I think you just lied. <laughs> I, think, I think so. All right, now here's my next question. How many lies does it take to make you a liar? That's it. Now here's the third question. Can you untell a lie? Nope. You can confess the truth. You can try to make things right. You can try to reconcile a relationship that was broken because of a lie. But you can never remove the fact that you are a liar. It's completely impossible. It's humanly impossible to do. That's why we need God's grace. Because what we can't do, we can't remove our sins that we have, that we have done that are going to keep us out of the presence of God, that are going to keep us out of heaven. We can't remove those things. But Jesus, by His grace, through the sacrifice of His body and the offering of His blood as a, as a sacrifice for us, He can. That's what He does. 
The Bible tells us multiple places that he will remove our sin from us. He gives, makes us a new creation, brand new, a fresh start. And he can take that, that sin away, completely remove it. And, and that's all done because of grace. That means, as I said, we cannot earn our way into a right relationship with God. We only get there by mercy. We only get there by his grace. This, that's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We need God's grace and we need God's truth. And he wants to come into our lives to reign supreme. He wants to be Lord of all. You know, so many Christians try to make a confession of faith and they, they want Jesus as their Savior, but they don't want him as their Lord. Well, that doesn't work. He, he wants to be Lord of our lives and he wants to prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love through your life. Now, how is he going to prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of, lo of your love, of his love through your life? Here it is. The greatest evidence of God's power in this world can be seen in the lives he has changed. It, they, you can see it in the life. I have known people who have gone through radical transformations that are so profound that only God could get the credit. You look in the scripture, you see people like the Apostle Paul who went from persecuting Christians and trying to destroy the church to suddenly, in, in almost overnight, he becomes the, the church's greatest missionary and a writer of a large portion of the New Testament. There are people in the New Testament like the man who was possessed by a legion of demons who went from there and began to preach the, the, about the, the message of Jesus. There are people like the Samaritan woman at the well who lived a life of sin and had gone through four husbands and was living with a fifth man to whom she was not married. People like Peter who went from being a loudmouthed, impulsive coward to, to a man who was unafraid of anything and was, wasn't even willing to be crucified the same way as his Lord. Or you go to modern times, people like Sam Butler sits up here, our friend who went from being a hopeless addict to being a young man who is absolutely on fire for Jesus. Or people like me who went from being a chronic liar. I told mo more lies than I can even remember in my lifetime. And it got to the point where I couldn't even, didn't even know the difference between the truth and the lie. And, and me, a chronic liar, a person uh, that, that God has called to say, now I want you to speak my truth. People like you. He wants to change your life if you'll let him. You know, I'm going to close with this. I mentioned earlier about having family come to your house to visit for a while. and How we make temporary adjustments for a few days so that everyone can have a place to sleep. And it, it usually works out pretty well as long as it's short term. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have gone on vacation and after a few days you're ready to go back home? just because it was just too much, all the change and all this stuff. And, or maybe, maybe you had people come on vacation and you're ready for them to go home in a few days. You don't have to raise your hand on that one in case they're here. I don't know, but it usually works out well for the short term because they're here and soon they're gone. You know, that's a lot different than a man I, I read about. His son came for a visit in early 2020. Anybody remember anything that happened significant in 2020? Yeah. He's there to, for this short visit. Next thing you know, there's a pandemic and he ended up staying for more than a year. Well, when a visit 
lasts that long, you don't get by, you can't get by on temporary arrangements. That requires some major adjustments. There's, there's an old poem by Lois Blanchard Eads, and it's entitled, If Jesus Came to Your House. And it starts with just these two words. I'm going to read just the first two lines. It starts by saying, if Jesus came to your house to spend a day or two, if he came unexpectedly, I wonder what you'd do. But here's the thing. Jesus does not come to visit for just a day or two. He's not looking for temporary housing. Jesus comes not for a short visit and then to pack his bags and head out. When Jesus comes, he comes to stay. He wants to take up residence in our lives for the rest of our days. And that means that there are no short-term quick fixes. It means that we need to build our lives around the idea that He is here to stay, that He's, he's in my life, He's the foundation of my life, He's the center of my life from now until the day I die. Living the victorious Christian life involves more than just a temporary adjustment here and there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question. How many of you remember the show? I don't, I don't think it's on anymore. I don't really watch that much network TV, but you remember the show Extreme Makeover Home Edition? You remember that one? You know, they had all these makeover shows, and then it kind of got to this one where they were, they were doing these. And if you remember, they would choose some needy uh, family in the community, and then they would send that family away for a, a week on some sort of vacation and then this massive crew would come in and remodel their home while they were gone. They actually did one in the Reno area when we were there and had a plumber in our church that worked on one of those houses. And you know, when it started, it was a significant change, a big remodel. But by the, every time they had to, every season they had to try to top what they did before. And if you remember by the end of this show, or at least the last time I, I watched it, it got to the point where they weren't just remodeling it, but they would go in there and just like bulldoze the house and rebuild a whole new thing on the foundation. You remember those? Those shows, I mean, it's just crazy stuff and they're doing it all in a week. And, 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 and I'm here to tell you, that's the kind of remodel Jesus is interested in in your life. He's not looking just to give your life a little, a nice polish, polish and shine. He's not looking to spruce up the decor a little bit, you know, redecorate your old life, move a few things around and make it look better. He's, he, he's looking to tear it all down and start all over. Jesus doesn't want to improve your life. He wants to give you a brand new one. That's what he wants to do. And if you want to see that become a reality in your lives, and listen, I'm talking to even those who have accepted Christ because some of us, we've accepted Christ, but we haven't let him give us the new life. We're still trying to live an old way. It's time to, it's time to forsake that. It's time to leave it behind and let him give you a brand new life. And if we want to see that become a reality, it means that, that we need to prepare him room. We need to make some changes. We need, to, we need to clean house. We need to do whatever we need to do so we can run our race. It means that we need to repeat the sounding joy, reminding others and reminding ourselves again and again of the goodness of God and proclaiming it to anyone that will listen. And it means that we need to, every single day and every single moment, at every turn, we choose this, not that. We choose God's way, not our way. We choose God's way, not the way of sin, not the way of the world. We choose the path of bless, blessings rather than the path of thorns. And as we do this every day, day by day, then we find out that He rules our world, our life, with truth and grace.
And what happens when that takes place is that you then become living proof to the world around you of the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. Would you bow your head together with me? (coughs) Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the joy that you bring to our lives, for the healing, for the restoration. And God, I just pray you'd help us all. Whatever, whatever point of this message, whatever part spoke to us, I pray, God, we would pay attention because I believe that you, there's something here today that you wanted to say to each of us and you want us to respond in a way that honors you. And maybe, God, it's some of us that need to begin to choose things that honor you, things that feed our soul and feed our relationship with you instead of things that pull us away. Maybe we need to clean house. Maybe we need, we, need to, we need to set up an appointment and we need to make room for you, take time for you. But God, whatever it is, maybe, maybe we've been focusing, maybe there's some that have been focusing on the problems and they've been forgetting the fact that their, their God is so much bigger than their problems and they've been stewing and worrying and losing sleep and wondering what's going to happen because they're looking at the giant instead of looking at the God who is who is our giant killer. And Lord, wherever we find ourselves, whatever we're dealing with, I pray, God, that today in the name of Jesus, that you just help us to respond to you and surrender. That's the only appropriate response is to give ourselves fully to you and say, Lord, take this old house and don't just try to remodel it. Don't just redecorate it, but tear it down and make me new. With heads bowed and eyes closed and there's nobody looking around. I don't know where you are. I don't know what part of the message may have spoken to you. But today, if you'd say, I, I, Pastor Dave, I just want to respond to the voice of the Spirit. He, he said something to me. I heard something that caught my attention. Maybe, maybe you've been looking at your problems. I just, for some reason, I've sensed, I keep coming to that, coming back to that. I feel as if there's somebody here that the Holy Spirit is saying, you're looking in the wrong place. You're worrying about things that you have no need to fear. You need to look to me. Maybe you've been trying to fix things and trying to take things into your own hand. You've been trying to deal with it yourself. And he's saying, I want you to let go. I want you to look to me. If that's you this morning, you say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. Would you just slip your hand up right where you are? Yes, yes, yes. All, several all over the place. I'm not surprised. I felt the Holy Spirit prompting me. That was an issue that he was dealing with. And maybe you're here today and say, Pastor, maybe it's not that, but there's something that God's dealing with me about today. And by raising your hand, you just simply say, Pastor, I want to surrender. I want to surrender it to Jesus. Is that you? Would you slip your hand up? Yes. Yes. You can put them right back down. Father, you saw the hands that were raised. And God, right now, we just, we want to lay it at your feet, whatever it is. Really, Lord, what we want to do is lay ourselves at your feet. And so, God, we just bring ourselves. We just say, Lord, have your way. And Lord, those that are dealing with issues and problems and heartaches and sorrows, I pray, God, that, that they would look at you, keep their eyes on you. And Lord, when, you, when they do that, they begin to see how small the giants are in their life compared to the greatness of our God. And Lord, 
every one of us, we just want to bring ourselves as an offering. You, you came and you became the greatest gift of all when you came to this world. And the only appropriate response, the only gift that we can bring to you this Christmas is to give you ourselves. So we do that today, God. We invite you to do what you want. We surrender to you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.